Every career is a journey. Every leader has a story. Welcome to Journey to the Energy C-Suite, where we look at the strategies and techniques that turn solid leaders into top executives. This is your place to hear practical wisdom and guidance from real people who know what it takes. With your host, Ryan Sanford. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our brand new podcast. It's Journey to the Energy C-Suite on the OGGN network of podcasts. I am your host, Ryan Sanford, and I could not be more happy to bring this show to you today. And we've been working on it for a while with our show sponsors. We're really excited to launch the show. We have a really, really fantastic guest today who I will introduce in a moment. But first, I want to talk a little bit about our show sponsor, the Price College of Business at the University of Oklahoma Executive MBA Program in Energy. Um, these folks have been great partners and collaborators with us uh, to get this show off the ground. They are very passionate about the energy industry and really focused on educating and preparing the energy leaders of tomorrow. If you want to learn more about the Price College of Business and the EMBA program in energy, you can check the show notes. There will be a link to their site where you can learn all about uh, all about the, the college and all about the prog programs that they have and uh, hope you check it out. Now, really excited to have our guest today. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Mr. Mike Stice. Um, he is an OU alumnus with more than 35 years of industry experience. He began his career in Oklahoma. He served for 25 years in technical and managerial roles at ConocoPhillips across a variety of businesses, countries, and continents. In 2009, he joined Chesapeake as president of Midstream Development and also served as SVP of Natural Gas Projects. He retired in 2015 as the CEO of Access Midstream. He currently serves on the board of directors for several companies and organizations, including Marathon Petroleum Company. He also contributes a lot of his time and energy to community causes and charities, including Special Olympics, Teach for America, Make-A-Wish Foundation, and others. He has an MBA from Stanford and a doctorate of education from the George Washington University. And he currently serves as Dean and Lester A. Day Chair at the Muburn College of Earth and Energy and also an adjunct professor at the Price College at OU. He is Mr. Mike Stice. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate the introduction. Looking forward to our conversation. Well, my pleasure. And we've got a lot of things that I want to cover with you today because you've had quite an extensive career um, a lot of different kinds of roles and been just about all over the map in terms of where you've worked. But if I could take you back, uh, way back when you were a young man and you were thinking about what I want to do with the rest of my life, um, how did you choose the energy industry as a career? What was it about it that attracted you? Well, that, that question's hard for me to answer because obviously not everything happens intentionally in my life. Uh, uh, the energy industry became about mostly as an accident. My uh, career in academia was a chemical engineer, which had the flexibility to go into the petroleum industry, and that was intentional. But I also thought maybe being a physician or ultimately um, doing something in chemistry more deeply was, was a career path. I fell in love with a variety of different desiccants, and I worked a summer for Procter & Gamble, and I really thought that I was going to go do research uh, and at Procter and Gamble, and I took my wife to Cincinnati. And after two trips to Cincinnati, it was very clear we were not going to Cincinnati. So <laughs> that 
that required me to look at Plan B. Plan B was a very challenging management development program that Conoco offered, uh, which was right here in Hennessy, Oklahoma. And so we, uh, as a young married couple, we started uh, our journey uh, in the oil and gas industry, working for Conoco, uh, living in Enid, Enid, Oklahoma. So, so clearly you were attracted to the big city aspects of, of the oil and gas industry. Yeah, that was it. Of course, my, my wife had never left uh, Cleveland County, Oklahoma. So going to Cincinnati, Ohio was too far a step. <laughs> so as I said, you, you served in a lot of technical roles and managerial roles early on. Let's talk a little bit about what it was like to make that first step from you know, being a, a high-level individual contributor to, act, contributor to actually managing other folks. What was that like? Well, Ryan, I don't know that I'm any different than, than others, but oftentimes when you're put in that first role as supervisor, you really aren't qualified. And I was no different. I, uh, I had become a very good engineer and had earned my stripes as, as a project engineer and a construction engineer. And uh, the company then thought, well, he'll be a good supervisor. And uh, my subordinates in that first role will tell you that I was not. Uh, it was quite a learning experience. Uh, I was at the time, uh, quite full of myself. Uh, and I oftentimes tell the story about a mentor of mine who, who commented, uh, that have you ever noticed Mike that, you know, organizations tend to thrive while you're there. And then when you leave, they fail. And of course I, uh, at that time as a young man, I was a little proud of that. I was like, going, aren't, isn't that a good thing? I mean, they need me. And of course, what the message he was sending me was a very um, profound one, which changed my career. Because after that comment, I realized that that wasn't a good success story. And I started focusing on organizational capability, started focusing on building people that could thrive once I had left. And that was very different than creating an organization that was dependent upon my sole expertise. And so I would say my first line supervisor role was uh, a, a little less uh, attractive than I would like it to be. Yeah. And so over the years, you, you were tapped for some international assignments. Uh, how did that come about? How, what was the first one? So my first assignment uh, was Australia. Uh, but that came on the heels of, and that would be my first leadership assignment. It came on the heels of a number of projects that I had done working for Archie Dunham as the executive vice president of Upstream. I had had the opportunity to oversee a project uh, or actually participate in a project in Russia. It was the Polar Lights project being conducted by others, uh, but I got to see firsthand uh, what that would be like. Um, but I really remember mostly that first job where I became president, if you will, of, of an international business unit in, in Australia. Uh, there we were kind of developing, trying to develop coal bed methane for the first time. And we had all the challenges you can imagine. Not only did we have the resource challenge of trying to figure out how to stimulate coals uh, to let go of their precious natural gas, we also had to create the market because the market didn't exist. That's how long ago that was. Uh, so uh, we really had a fantastic experience in Australia. My family enjoyed it as well. Lots of fond memories. Uh, I can tell you that the assignment came with most of my peers being quite jealous. Uh, I had just finished my uh, master's of science at Stanford. Uh, I had gotten a business degree there. And the reward out of the Sloan Fellow Program was to go and become the president of Conoco Australia. Great experience. Was there two and a half years. 
uh, spent a lot of time understanding the culture and how we were divided by common language. Uh, and it was, uh, it was quite an experience to, as my first uh, out of a country experience, having a, having a common language was very beneficial. Um, obviously, after that, I got to see Vietnam, Cambodia, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, a variety of much more challenging cultures, which I even learned more from. Yeah, I wonder if you could just you know reflect on a couple of, of additional learning experiences as you as you moved around the, the, the moved around the world into some of those some of those other countries that didn't share a common language. Were there any any specific lessons that you learned that were maybe a little bit unexpected? So many, you know, Ryan. I, I I can think of so many. It's kind of hard to focus on the one or two. But I will just tell you, as a global citizen, you know, when you basically become that expat that goes in and out of a variety of markets. And Conoco used me more as the startup guy. So I was the guy that went into the country when, frankly, an office didn't exist, uh, mm. you know, the contract didn't exist. And so you were making introductions to the people of power and trying to learn and, and, and gain experience uh, in the culture. And what I think, you know, the stories that, that I'm reminded of, um, you know, have to do with, you know, negotiating deals in Vietnam, uh, had a really amazing uh, Vietnam manager and Bill Lafferander. Uh, and our first negotiation uh, was with the Petro Vietnam. And I remember calling home to my dad and my dad was, you know, uh, commenting about, well, where are you? And I was in Hanoi. And of course, my dad had had three tours in mm. Vietnam. And I remember telling him, I'm going, I'm in Hanoi. And the guy that I'm negotiating with uh, was in the military. And he said, well, you know, he might know me asking. I said, no, dad, he was on the other side. And so wow. it was an interesting conversation. I don't think my dad knew quite how to take that uh, because you know, obviously things had changed significantly from the time when he was there. Uh, and here we were already in North Vietnam having commercial arrangements and relationships with who once previously was our enemy. Uh, and so I found lots of uh, opportunity to bridge gaps uh, between our countries and theirs. I found myself uh, in situations of different religions uh, and, and different languages and always really not being a big linguist myself. I never mastered any of the languages of the countries that I that I lived in, um, but I always managed with um, the rapport that I was able to build to ultimately navigate those different cultures. Now, I have to admit that they did come with some hard lessons. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, more than once I, I felt like uh, I needed to learn some hard lessons in the Middle East. I think at one point they took my passport away because I wasn't cooperating um, the, quite the way they were uh, wanting me to do. Uh, and so that was in Doha, Qatar. Uh, and so I had to learn how to, how to behave in these countries uh, in a way that would be collaborative. And so it was a it was a really great experience. I can tell you that I have nothing but positives in hindsight. Uh, big big relationships, uh, people that I love and care for in every one of these cultures. Uh, and so I can tell you that um, I couldn't speak more highly of a career of international expat assignments. Yeah, it feels like as big as the world is, it really is pretty small when you think it about is. this industry and how business is done across continents and. All the folks that that cross paths that um, you know they may all be from the U.S., but they end up meeting each other in other countries and other continents, working together. It's pretty fascinating. You know, the thing that probably 
resonates from all the different experiences is, you know, we're so different on the surface. Uh, might have a different language, might have a different religion, clearly a different country, different context, different economy. Um, but we're so similar uh, in principle. I mean, uh, family values. Uh, I, I made many friends and spent a lot of my time at, at other friends, my Muslim friends' homes uh, or in, in Asia. I found myself uh, very much interested in Chinese culture and, and learning uh, kind of their different way of life. Um, I just found that, that those differences actually came, is where power came from in our relationship. Uh, and so mo many people think that you need to be similar potentially in order to have a common bond, but that was not my experience. The, the actual differences led to some really strong friendships. Yeah. Now, you, you wrapped up your corporate career as the CEO of, uh, of Access, and uh, I wonder, like, was that something you aspired to early on, that you wanted to, you wanted to be the, the top man one day, or is that something that just kind of unfolded as each, each one of your assignments built upon the other? You know, I, I probably was one of those people that it was I'm ambitious and wanted to be a CEO someday. I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't deny that. Now, the way it came about was quite different than I thought. I mean, for those who aren't familiar with the natural gas industry here in the U.S., in 2003, I chaired the supply committee for the National Petroleum Council. And that was not that long ago. But in 2003, the conclusion of the NPC, and this is a letter that goes to the president, I've been trying to get it off the web ever since I wrote it. Still has my signature on it. But the conclusion from that 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 committee, which had everybody on it, I mean, every major, every independent, our conclusion was the natural gas industry in North America is done. It's over. There's not any more natural gas. In order to keep the lights on here in America, we were going to have to go and find resources out elsewhere and then ship it here in the form of LNG. And I believed in that message so much that that's what led to my career change and go and pursue uh, the Cutter Gas 3 project, which was a major scale LNG project in Doha, Qatar. It was actually built in Rostov-on, and we complemented it with a facility on the Gulf Coast, which would be a regasification. So I was going to go solve that problem. So while I was there for six years working on that project to build that capacity so that the LNG could come to America, lo and behold, back here was the shale revolution. So George Mitchell did what he did in the Barnett shale, and then many of my independent friends took off developing large quantities of natural gas right here in North America, making everything we said in 2003 wrong. And so that's when Aubrey McClendon gave me a call and said, Mike, you know, you want to come back and, uh, and run midstream for me? Uh, I had developed some expertise in infrastructure and processing and pipelines. And, and I said, well, we no longer need the LNG. We were actually trying to convert the regas facilities to liquefaction facilities and reverse the pipelines, if you will. And so I came back to work for Aubrey and had a great career there at Chesapeake Midstream and then ultimately acquired the midstream business from uh, Chesapeake informed access midstream. Had a great partner in Global Infrastructure Partners, which was a private equity firm out of New York. Um, and we took what was initially like a $500,000 investment to a $16.2 billion uh, enterprise value in 2015 when I sold it to Williams. And so that's what led to my retirement 
is that we actually sold the business uh, to Williams in 2015. Wow. If you're talking to someone who might be a guy like you were, <laughs> who has aspirations to be a CEO one day, and they're looking at the industry now and the opportunities that might be there for them. I mean, how should they be thinking about that? How do you see that role evolving um, in light of you know all the things that, that are going on right now in the world and the changes that are in the in- energy industry uh, globally, uh, geopolitically, all those factors? How, how would you advise someone? So I think in most cases, um, you need to let your life unfold and then let it unfold in a way that obviously is, is intentional for you. Uh, for me in the price college, I teach a course called leadership and change. And what I do is I first probe into every individual person in this case, Ryan, I'd be asking you, how well do you know yourself? And what I find more often than not, somebody who's young, mid-career, individual, they haven't done enough reflection. They haven't taken the time to do some introspective understanding of who they are. What's their IQ? What's their Myers-Briggs? You know, what motivates them? And and for me, that came late in life. It, it, it would have been much better if it had happened earlier. Um, I had taken a course by David Bradford uh, at Stanford called Post-Heroic Leadership. And that led me down a journey of curiosity. I was very interested in different leadership styles, both transactional and transformational. And if you don't, if you don't study the way you influence others and how you impact others, and if you don't develop your own unique individual leadership style that's congruent with who you are, then you will not be effective and likely not be a CEO. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be somebody you're not. It means you have to be who you are. And to be who you are means you've got to first understand that. And I find too often people haven't spent the time to know who they are. A leader, and know thyself. Got, you've got to know yourself. Yeah. And then you've got to look for leadership styles that work with you. For me, that evolved into becoming a transformational leader in academic terms, but to become a servant leader. I found that my success improved exponentially when the actions that I was taking each and every day were in service to others, not to me. And I don't mind admitting to those people on this call that a young Mike Stice was more about me, okay? And it wasn't until later in my career, 35, 36, when I realized that when I was in service to others, when I was really doing servant leadership, then good things happened. Organizational culture uh, became the one I wanted. Uh, Employees wanted to stay and and good employees wanted to be retained and work with me. And frankly, work became fun. Uh, And so I had to put a a nail in the head of the old Mike Stice, who was very arrogant, very uh, uh, good at what he did, maybe too good at what he did, uh, but uh, obviously too into himself and not into what the real purpose of leadership is, which is, in, is it, it's a service role. Yeah. Would you consider that to be sort of your own personal leadership point of view um, that's developed over the years, just really making it about other people and um, that, that, that humble leadership aspect? And you just said that the key ingredient to, to for me anyway, 
because it wasn't natural for me. Okay. Uh, the key ingredient was to embrace that humility, to acknowledge my vulnerabilities and to ultimately be somebody that others could be influenced by because I could be honest with them about my own limits. And, uh, I think for the first 25 years or maybe 15 years of my career, I tried to hide those things. You know, I tried to, you know, how can I not show people what I'm not good at, you know? And, uh, you know, when I finally realized that sharing those vulnerabilities and ultimately acknowledging them and then tapping into others who might have strengths where I'm weak to build a team that would be stronger overall, that was the key ingredient to success. But it took a while. Uh, to embrace that humility. Uh, the good news now is I make mistakes every day and I'm often reminded about, about that humility. Uh, I like that a lot. I really do. I, I want to talk a little bit about how you made the pivot um, when your corporate career was over, you decided to go into academics. Um, and before, before I get into that, I want to go back to, to your postgraduate education too. I wonder um, what, what were some of the, the most valuable aspects of, of that for you at, at Stanford and then later on uh, at the George Washington University? So, you know, obviously Conoco thought highly enough of me to send me to Stanford to their Sloan Fellowship Program. And that was very transformative in that a couple of things. One, I had not had a business degree. Uh, I had had a very technical chemical engineering degree. And so I didn't really know how to navigate balance sheets and financial statements, income statements. And so there wasn't some explicit knowledge that I was missing that I got, which I thought was really valuable. And uh, but part of the biggest change at Stanford is Stanford focuses on the soft skills. Uh, and as I mentioned about uh, the post-heroic leadership class, I also took a number of classes in team building. I, I also took a lot of environmental science classes there, which shaped my views later in, in how we take care of our environment. Uh, so generally speaking, it was a huge shift in the way I approached business, uh, having graduated Stanford. And then, of course, Conoco was kind enough to put me in a leadership role almost immediately. And so I was able to apply it. So having learned it in college, I was able to apply it. Yeah. Think about the networking aspect of, of the relationships you built when you were doing that program. Um, you know, how has that played out over the course of your career since then? Yeah. Um, do you still stay in touch with those folks? Have, is that, uh, have you run across those people doing deals over the years and that sort of thing? Very much so. And, and you know, the thing that I think is fascinating, I, and I was more intentional about this than I let on in um, – when I was 24 years old, I took a very important course called Principle-Centered Leadership from the author of the book at the time, Stephen Covey, who's no longer with us. He, he was killed in a, in a bicycle accident. He was an amazing instructor, uh, even went well beyond the, the excellence that you find in that book. And I, I would very much encourage people to read that book and understand the seven habits and apply it in their life. But one of the things you had to do in that class is you had to write a mission statement. And you had to think about who you wanted to be. You even had to write your own epitaph. Okay. But, but from that came a very um, insightful conversation I had to have with myself. And it was then that I wrote that I want to have my master's in business by the time I was uh, 35. I want to have my doctorate degree by the time I was 50. And I ultimately want my retirement to be one of teaching at the collegiate level. So I actually had that vision 
when I was 24 years old. And so when I turned 34, it was almost like a, 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 a clock went off. Oh my gosh, I haven't gotten my master's. And I started applying to business schools all over. And then finally I went to my boss and said, Hey, I'm thinking about leaving. Going to go get this business degree. I made this commitment to myself. And they said, Hey, how about going to Stanford and, and we'll pay your way. And I said, Hey, that's better yet. Uh, and so I did that. Right, so, so you decided early on that you wanted to contribute in that way later on in your career. Um, I, I wonder if you think about the students that you work with now, the, the ones that are in your programs, um, you know, what would your message be? Maybe even to prospective students, those mid-career professionals, maybe they're, you know, they're in their early thirties, they've established themselves over, over the course of a decade or so. And, and they're thinking about, you know, do I decide to take that step and enter into a formal undergraduate uh, education, I'm sorry, for, formal postgraduate education, um, balancing the, you know, the, the family responsibilities, the financial and the work responsibilities, not an easy decision for no. folks in that, in that spot. How, how would you uh, advise them to be thinking about their careers? Well, Ryan, first, you're right. It's not an easy decision. It took me six years to get my doctorate degree, you know, three years. I was actually living in Doha, flying once a month from the Middle East to Dulles, to get my degree at George Washington University, landing at 6 p.m. at night, going straight to class from seven weekend classes, fly back to my job in Doha. And, and I did that for three years in order to get the academic requirements uh, done. And then it took me another three years to complete my dissertation. So I, I do want to point out that this is not an easy thing to do, but if you have the commitment, you will do it. And here's the bottom line. The commitment needs to come from a burning desire to answer some question. If you're going to be going into graduate school, like in a technical area, even if you're just getting a master's uh, in any type of STEM related science, there needs to be a question that you left unanswered from your undergraduate degree. What is it? Did I need to understand, you know, about fluid flow through shales? Is that something that I'm just fascinated by and my curiosity just, I can't sleep at night because I want to find out that answer. I feel like I can make a contribution to that. In a technical area, you really do need to have a burning question. And for me, I had been exposed to such different leaders. In academic terms, we call them transactional versus transformational leaders. And I had seen successful both. And I was like, I need to better understand what leadership attributes each of these individuals have and that what are the cultures that ultimately thrive under that kind of leadership so that I could land on my own style that I wanted. And that's why I went to George Washington University. That's when I chose a doctorate in leadership. And, uh, and so it's what fascinated me the most. If you go in there with the intent just to get a degree for the sake of getting a degree, my guess is you won't finish. Um, you really have to have a passionate drive, uh, something that you're really curious about, because like we said, it's not an easy chore. Yeah. You think about uh, your role as dean of, of Mewburn and, and the, the teaching work you do at the Price College. I mean, what, what are you most excited about with uh, what they have cooking in Oklahoma? So, Ryan, I have a great job. It's, it is really, I mean, the thing I like to do is serve others. And so here I have undergraduate students. I have graduate students. Uh, when I go and teach at the Price College in the executive MBA, I have in front of me each class 20 mid-career executives. 
that are taking a pause out of their life and trying to ask the questions, the very questions that I was posed in this podcast. And, and I, I get the opportunity to make a difference. And that's what makes my day. Okay. And so oftentimes I give them advice about knowing themselves. We talked about that. Oftentimes I'll tell them you're in the wrong job. You need to quit. And you need to go redirect. Maybe you do need to pursue an academic career. You seem to be so curious about X, Y, or Z. And so I think you need to, you owe it to yourself to go find those answers. And, you know, more often than not, when I'm, when I'm supervising an undergrad, the message always is to a young person, find your limits. In other words, take the most difficult route possible because you never, you're never going to be so safe in your possibility of failing than you are right here in your academic career. So find out where your limit. If you don't think you can pass Calc 3, take Calc 4. Okay, you know, take the biggest challenge you have. Find out what your limits are. This is the place to confront your limits and learn how to overcome them. When I talk to a graduate student, a master's student, I really want to understand what is that burning question that you're trying to answer? And I want to put you in, in with the right network of people so that with that network, you're going to even elevate your understanding greater. Because nine times out of 10, it's not the book you read. It's not the research you do in a lab. It's the people you get to know who want to answer that same question that you have. And then these young people that come back mid-career and they're taking the executive MBA, most of them are somewhat lost souls. They're not quite sure what they're doing is what their future is going to be. They generally have some challenge, might be a difficult supervisor, might be a difficult environment, macroeconomic environment, and they need some comfort and some tools. And that's what I pride myself on is giving them some tools to navigate maybe those turbulent waters. And, uh, and my best day is when they call me back three years later and say, you know, Dean nice when you said blah, 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 that changed my life. And I'm like going, Okay, that's that's what I like to do. Well, I can I can feel the excitement just hearing you talk about that. It's no question that that this was something you wanted to do and leverage the great experience you've had over the thirty five years or so of, of leading companies. Um, boy, I could sit here all day and and and, and ask you more questions. Now we're getting close to our time, but I wanted to maybe uh, take off your academic hat for a moment and and maybe uh, think about. Maybe, maybe a crystal ball question here. Think about maybe the next five years in, in energy and people who are in leadership roles, aspiring to do more, aspiring to lead businesses or lead enterprises. Um, how should they be thinking differently now about their industry and the implications for leaders over the next five years? Well, it's a great question. And, you know, I'm not smart enough to predict the future. Nobody on your podcast would be, but I can tell you that I have some thoughts and and my thoughts are uh, built around the energy and transition and the construct that I would get everyone to think about is we have to think first and foremost about the impact we are having on earth and on our environment. And there's no question that fossil fuels have played an amazing role in our economic development, but there is also serious concerns about climate and the carbon footprint that we're creating as we continue to use predominantly fossil fuels for that purpose. So our job over the next five years and frankly 10 years and beyond is to consider the consequences to the environment 
And fossil fuels are going to be here for, for many years. They're, they're not going away. But what? how can we reduce that footprint? How can we embrace the other technologies that need to come in that have a carbon neutral or carbon zero uh, impact? You know, whether it be wind or solar or the electrification of the transportation fleet, these are all steps in the right direction. And so what I want to encourage people to think about is I want them to think about an all-in energy strategy. Even nuclear power will have a role to play in ensuring that we are providing the needs, the energy needs of a growing uh, global uh, population, but also doing it in a way that is environmentally sustainable. And I think we've got to make some shifts, some changes right now. And that's why I refer to uh, a lot of the education we do here at the Mewburn College of Earth and Energy is, is an energy in transition. And we refer to that transition as being one that balances the consequences to the environment with the needs of providing affordable and abundant energy to a growing population worldwide. Oh, thank you, Mike. I appreciate the time. We are out of time, but it was a pleasure to sit with you today. Um, thank you for giving us your time. I know our, our listeners certainly benefited from your stories and your wisdom. Um, I want to remind everybody uh, if you uh, would be so kind, we would love for you to go to iTunes or wherever you access your podcast and leave a review to make this uh, more easily findable for all your friends and, and colleagues. And if you really enjoyed the podcast, please tell somebody about it. Um, you could find us at the OGGN uh, website or the journey to the energy c-suite.com website as well to learn more and access the show notes um, once again i want to thank our show sponsor the price college of business at the university of oklahoma's executive mba program in energy um, look forward to seeing you guys all again soon for our next show and until then have a great day hey everybody it's savannah from oggn and here are the events on deck for may 2021 this month, we have four events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our online events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our in-person event, which is the 20 YPO's networking mixer at the Houston Club on May 25th. Next, we have our three online events, the Post-Industrial Summit Series from May 4th to June 22nd, the Data Fabric and Data Ops webinar on May 5th, and the Maritime Career Day hosted by Women Offshore on May 21st. Other than these events, OGGN has a live stream this month titled Identifying and Evaluating Advantaged Oil Projects on May 5th. So make sure to check that out on our Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com for more information. You can also find more information about that or any of the live streams or events we have coming up also on Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for May. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for another enlightening episode of Journey to the Energy C-Suite, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.